Hey folks, welcome to the show. All right, so what we're going to be talking about tonight, I've got a ruling from Judge Nervo from New York City who was assigned to our case, um, Russell Wishtart and NYC Clash against the city of New York against the city of New York over the um, obviously infamous uh, vaping ban on all indoor public spaces as well as 15% of all outdoor space in New York City vape shops exempted. I'm also going to talk a little bit about Indiana and what's going on there, uh, as well as a couple other topics. So let's just get right down to it. This is what you guys paid for, or at least part of it. So this is from the judge, and um, he sucks at grammar, so I'm not reading this stuff wrong. He just isn't a very careful typer. <laughs> plaintiffs, uh, plaintiffs, an individual, that would be me, and NYC Clash, an acronym for the New York citizens lobbying against smoker harassment, bring this action seeking declaratory and injunctive relief on the ground that Local Law 152 is ultra-virus and unconstitutional. Local Law 152 is a law to amend the administrative code of the city of New York in relation to the regulation of electronic cigarettes. The law amends various sections of the administrative code of the city of New York to impose the same restrictions on the use of electronic cigarettes as the restrictions on the use of conventional cigarettes. That ban prohibits smoking in restaurants, bars, offices, government buildings, stores, and other public places. In particular, Local Law 152 amends Administrative Code of the City of New York 17-503 to read, Prohibition of smoking and use of electronic cigarettes. A. Smoking is and using electronic cigarettes are prohibited in all enclosed spaces within public spaces. Uh, plaintiffs allege that Local Law 152 prohibits smoking and the use of electronic cigarettes. The two laws are two sub contain two subjects. Therefore, they argue, the law violates the single subject rule. The rule, in its present form, is contained in the constitutional provision, statute and city charter provision, on which plaintiffs rely. Each uses similar language. A law may embrace only one subject. The single subject rule, as the name states, is designed to prevent log rolling, that is, concealing one legislative act within another. The rule was created in response to Aaron Burr presiding, persuading the legislature to grant him a charter for a water company which was hidden in a bill enabling him to found a bank. The rule's purpose is to, quote, prevent the uniting of various objects having no necessary or natural connection with each other. However, a law complies with the rule where the law's objectives are, quote, naturally connected with the subject matter and the title of the law and, appri and apprise the reader of what may reasonably be expected to be found in the statute, end quote. Local Law 152 meets the test articulated in Burke v. Kern, and does not violate the single subject rule. The law's title unequivocally states its purpose to amend the administrative code to regulate electronic cigarettes. The legislative findings recite the potential hazards of such devices and that the purpose of the law is to prohibit their use in prescribed places and to, facil to facilitate the already existing Smoke-Free Air Act. Given this, the public cannot be deceived about the purpose of the law. Moreover, all the provisions of the law show a single purpose, that is, to regulate e-cigarette consumption in the manner as the law regulates tobacco-burning cigarettes. 
Both are nicotine delivery devices, and both are being prohibited with some statutorily uh, uh, defined exceptions. Thus, the law does not conceal unrelated matters. Local Law 152, as the City Council's legislative finding states, is to prevent the interference with and enforcement of the already existing Smoke-Free Air Act. The findings state that the use of electronic cigarettes is visually similar to the smoking of cigarettes and has already been observed in locations where smoking is prohibited, creating concern and confusion that threatens the enforcement of the Smoke-Free Air Act. The use of electronic cigarettes, uh, the use of electronic cigarette devices in places where smoking is prohibited may increase the social acceptability of smoking, particularly for youth, potentially undermining the enormous progress that has been made over the years in discouraging smokings, in, in discouraging smoking. Reading the title of the law, the council's findings, and the body of the law, one can readily see that the sole purpose of that law is to treat conventional and electronic cigarettes in the same manner. The components of the law are naturally connected. Um, regulating both devices in a single piece of legislation does not violate the one-subject rule. Separate pieces of legislation are not required to regulate each device. The use of the word smoking in relation to conventional cigarettes and the word use in regard to e-cigarettes does not, as plaintiffs argue, change, the sim change this single-subject law into a dual-subject law. At best, this argument raises a distinction without a difference. Local Law 152 does not become invalid merely because a cigarette is ignited by fire and an e-cigarette is ignited electronically. This constitutes the decision and order of the court. Dated May 8, 2015, the Honorable Pank, um, Frank P. Nervo. So there you have it, folks. There's obviously bad news and good, well, and maybe not so obviously good news in this. Um, well, here's the neutral news. This is exactly where we would have been uh, pretty much no matter what, because we would have been moving forward with an appeal either way. Um, and by that, I mean, if um, Mr. Nervo actually read our complaint, which it's dubious if he, if he actually did based on what he wrote there um, and ruled in our favor, the city would be appealing and we would be back in court. Obviously, Frank, uh, um, Judge Nervo, did not uh, agree with us, um, ruled against us. And of course now we, near uh, Audrey Silk's organization, uh, NYC Clash and myself will be proceeding with an appeal. I'll have more uh, details. I'll probably just have uh, one of our lawyers on in the near future uh, once we have everything hammered out and exactly how we're going to uh, proceed with the appeal. But uh, here's the good news. Um, it's always good to win the first one, um, but the manner in which he ruled against us is uh, as good as it could be, as good of a news as it could be with regard to an appeal. And the reason why is that, well, I think Audrey said it best. Uh, I'll read what she wrote to me and the lawyers. Uh, this is a total disregard for what the Smoke-Free Air Act was intended for. The act is not intended to regulate a device, but the product of the device. Our core argument, to which he gives no mention at all, not even to deny or disparage it. And that's completely true. Um, we had a specific argument 
he completely ignored it. Um, a little bit more from Audrey. The court ruled on our lawsuit today, and it was not in our favor. Our lawyers, our co-plaintiff Russ Wishtart, and I all agree that this judge was totally out to lunch in arriving at the at his decision because it's like he didn't even read our suit. Only two pages, of which I read all of, only two pages to conclude something that bears no resemblance to the case we make. Our lawsuit, uh, she's talking about um, the lawsuit that NYC Clash did uh, many, many years ago against the smoking ban. Our lawsuit against NYC's indoor smoking ban in 2003 garnered an 83-page opinion in comparison. Again, Mr. Uh, Judge Nervo couldn't be more bothered than a very poorly punctuated and grammar atrocity in two pages. It's, it's, it's literally like he, he sat down and wrote, wrote it in 15 minutes. Audrey continues, I feel like he almost worked on our case in his spare time, like thumbing through a magazine you feel obligated to look at but can only leap through at your own convenience and then toss it down, only glimpsed rather than thoroughly read, and say, good enough, I at least completed the chore. We will appeal. I'd have written sooner, but by coincidence was uh, to meet with our lawyers in regard to our NYC Parks appeal today, and that kept me busy. Obviously, I agree with Audrey 100%. And again, the good news is, is that, um, you see, to get, in the, the I don't want to get too technical into this because I'm going to let one of our lawyers come on and do that at some point in the future. Um, but the appeals process, uh, there, there are several stages. And because this judge basically ignored our entire, um, our entire reason for our complaint, for our lawsuit, it's going to make it that much easier for a appeals court to actually accept it. He set such a low bar. We can walk in and say, well, here is the argument that we made. He ignored it. Um, so the chance of them actually hearing the appeal, I believe, uh, and again, I'm not a lawyer, I'm a layman, but because he basically ignored our core argument, did not address it at all, um, I think the bar is set so much lower for a higher court to even accept our case. Um, that said, um, this is perhaps, uh, what, what happened was perhaps even if uh, Judge Nervo did actually take the time to read our complaint and address our argument, um, it was kind of a long shot uh, to have a ruling in our favor this first go around. We were expecting an appeal. Um, it's almost it's almost a better result that this has happened in the way that it did. Um, the city, uh, their response was anemic and his response was even more so. Um, we'll have a much better chance of getting an opinion in our favor in a higher appeals court, which of course we're doing. The reason why we thought, uh, why, why it was kind of expected no matter what, even if our argument was addressed by the judge, which it wasn't, uh, was because these people all work together. Uh, these judges, these, uh, these uh, people who we, I mean, we sued the city of New York, but we also specifically sued the speaker and the NYC council um, these people all work in the same buildings. They see each other every day. They're friends. 
it would have to take um, something really, really major. Not that this isn't, uh, but it would have to be in their mind something really, really major for them to go against their own kind. I, I don't know a better way to say it. So we kind of expected this, and it is actually a good result that his response was so flippant, so anemic, um, so short. So onwards. We were going to be at this point anyway, thanks to all of the vendors and the vapors who donated to us. Um, this appeal is already funded. Uh, we, we, we are not at this point seeking further money for appeals. Um, we, have a, we have our war chest in good order. Um, so onwards, upwards, and on to the next stage. And thank you so much for everyone who donated. We're just getting started. You know, I think one of my, uh, I wouldn't call it favorite, but one, the, 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 one of the things that really got me from what the judge wrote, local law 152 does not become invalid merely because a cigarette is ignited by fire and an e-cigarette is ignited electronically. It just demonstrates a complete ignorance of what these devices even are. Uh, furthermore, um, and I don't know if this is something that can help us in the future. Um, I suggested it to the lawyers. I, I, I don't know if it's useful or not, but, um, he states that, um, both. And when he says, when he says both, he means both traditional, uh, tobacco cigarettes and electronic cigarettes are nicotine delivery devices and both are being prohibited, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we know that's not always the case. Uh, many vapors use zero nicotine, and I don't know if that's something we can use to attack or to use in our appeal, uh, but it's yet another example of him just demonstrating a complete ignorance, and we have, of course, all of this was laid out in our, plaint, in our, um, in our complaint. Just to finish this up, just one more thing from Audrey. Um, I don't know what paper he read, but our argument is not that they are two different devices. Our argument is that the act was not intended to regulate the smoker, not their own smoking, and certainly not the cigarette they held in their hand. It was intended to regulate the smoke that came out of a cigarette because of its alleged harm to others. They banned the electronic cigarette to regulate smokers 
uh, and vapors, which has zero to do with health protection of those who are exposed to vaping. My point, how the actual tangible object is similar or dissimilar short of producing tobacco smoke is irrelevant. I feel like he couldn't even be bothered to read our brief. At the end of the day, this law, the Smoke-Free Air Act, was meant to do one thing, regulate where um, secondhand smoke was allowed. It wasn't about a cigarette. It was, it was about the emission of the cigarette. And their argument was based on health grounds. They presented all the scientific, and, you know, and it went through, and it's the law, and it has been for, for over 10 years. Um, that was not, they never did that with this. They never did that with the vaping ban. They never made any health arguments at all. Their arguments were the main one being, it looks similar to smoking and thus it may create confusion in the enforcement of the Smoke-Free Air Act since the two Devices, when being used, they look so similar. That was cited by Nervo in his reply. Um, well, anyway, you, you heard me read it. He, he cited that in his in his reply. Interestingly enough, um, maybe I can grab this really, really quick. I should have pulled this before the show, but I think I know where it is. Hang on one second, because this is pretty relevant. Now, where the hell would it be? Uh... Okay, so here, check this out. So that was one of the major, I can't believe I found it that quick. That was uh, one of the major arguments that the city made, right? Since these two things look alike, their argument is, well, somebody could be vaping and uh, then other people would just think it'd be okay to, to, to smoke and it would, it would create a problem in the enforcement of the Smoke-Free Air Act. Well, who would know more about that better than the guys who are in charge of the NYC Hospitality uh, Board, that these uh, the organization that represents bar owners, club owners, restaurant owners, et cetera, et cetera. He came to testify, and the the um, the health council heard this testimony, which I think is um, quite relevant to bring up again now, since the judge specifically uh, cited this. Um, this is what they had to say about difficulty in enforcing the Smoke Free Air Act due to people vaping. Hi, Rob Bookman, Counsel to the Hospitality Alliance and the New York City News and Operators Association. Uh, Dr. Farley stated when it came to the science, we just don't know. And, but he, and he also said the primary concern of the health department is enforcement. So let's talk about the businesses we represent. We're not here for big tobacco. We, we have nothing to do with the, uh, with the other side either. We're, we're, we're in the hospitality industry. We have no enforcement issues whatsoever. There is no, there, there is no problems that have been reported to us. Uh, for the most part, these are being used, as Andrew said, in bars and clubs. It is very easy for us to tell the difference between people smoking illegal cigarettes and people uh, vaping. Uh, as a matter of fact, a, a common thing when, uh, when a bartender or a server goes over just to make sure if it's one of those that, that looks alike uh, is, is that people go like this. To their face, showing that they're, they're, they're vaping. Um, many have blue tips. It is not a problem. Uh, to base a law, therefore, when your own health commissioner says, as far as the science for secondhand uh, exposure, we just don't know, um, to base it on that he thinks it's a problem for enforcement, 
when the health department, I don't know the last time they issued a summons to anybody smoking in indoors, their policy is not to, as you recall. We are the enforcers of the Smoke-Free Air Act, and we do a great job, according to the health department, in enforcing it, and we have no problem whatsoever in allowing people to vape in our establishments and telling the difference between smoking and vaping. Um, Councilman Gennaro, who I rarely disagree with, said, what's the big deal? What's all the hubbub? Well, Councilman, when it is a big deal when local government wants to limit the use of a legal product without any scientific evidence that it is unsafe, in this case, unsafe to others. That is a big problem. The issue here is, is not, and you're hearing much too much testimony, on whether e-cigarettes are unhealthy for the, you, the user. The issue for this bill is, is it dangerous for other people in the room, me? And your own health commissioner has said he has no evidence to that effect. That was the basis for 10 years ago, throwing all the hundreds of thousands of smokers out onto the streets at night, which is, by the way, when we started to get complaints, for, and you started to, from your constituents about late-night noise on the street outside bars. We're finally seeing a product that is keeping some of those smokers inside where your constituents want them, where we want them, where maybe it's helping them quit, maybe it's not. But from our perspective, it's, it's hospitable, it's putting less people on the street, Bars and clubs, I have no children there, we're all adults. There is no reason uh, to ban the use of this lawful product uh, for lawful adults where lawful adults congregate, you know, especially late at night. This passing this would lower the bar so dramatically for what government, the basis for what government could use to ban a lawful product that, that I fear that the ultimate lawsuits I'll just finish up, that these companies will bring, if you rush this through and pass it, and in my opinion they will win, will really make it more difficult for the next council and the next administration to come up with reasonable regulations about maybe uh, like we did with toy guns, make them orange or make them a color uh, that, you know, that doesn't look real, that there are many reasonable regulations that we can all work with and come up with together, but if you just pass this and pass this real quickly, they're going to go to court, they're going to win on the lack of science, and it may make it extremely difficult for you Rob? to then come back and regulate. Well, I think he's right. We didn't win today, uh, but I think our chances are far, far greater once we actually, uh, I don't know where the next court would be. Maybe it'd be Albany. I don't know. Be, I think it would be out of the city. Anyway, onward, upward, not discouraged at all. Slightly disappointed that he didn't even read what we sent, but onward. Uh, speaking of lawsuits against the state for stupid vaping regulations, the Indiana Vapors, um, several businesses it looks like, have uh, taken to court uh, the state over those draconian vaping uh, legislation items that have passed and signed into law. Um, I don't have much on this. Uh, but here, this is from one of the plaintiffs, I suppose. This afternoon, Derb e-cigs, along with Legato Vapors and Jet Setter Vapors, filed a lawsuit in federal court against the state of Indiana. We believe that the new regulations set forth by the state are unconstitutional and give an unfair advantage to the tobacco manufacturers. Please stay tuned for more information. Um, and I, I have this crude screenshot here, if you want to see it. Uh, I, I'm sorry for the atrocious font. That's not my phone. It's someone else's. So, 
How do people even read their phones when they do that? So this should be interesting. This is a completely different, obviously, Indiana has, their regulations are, are you know, really threaten the industry uh, as a whole in the entire state. Um, our particular lawsuit isn't addressing something like that. Um, uh, most notably, uh, there is not going to be a single e-cigarette, I'm sorry, there will not be a single e-liquid manufacturer in the country, much less the world, that will comply with these Indiana regulations to sell into Indiana. In other words, uh, in order for the regulations that they're putting on the e-liquid manufacturers in Indiana are all these crazy things, uh, 24-hour surveillance, ridiculously expensive security locks, um, uh, keeping samples of, of batches, like all, all this stuff that would put Indiana e-liquid manufacturers out of business for sure. But on the other hand, there is not going to be anyone from, people from out of state would have to comply also. That's part of the law. So if you make if you make e-liquid in California or New Mexico or wherever, you would have to comply with all this stuff just to sell into Indiana. Now, obviously, e-liquid manufacturers in Indiana, they're probably doing most of their business in Indiana, probably to brick and mortars and the like and et cetera, et cetera. Um, they have to comply with this to stay in business. They have to, or they got, or they can move out of state, which, well, that's what I would recommend at this point. I'm not saying don't fight this. I'm just saying go buy a new warehouse in the meantime. But what e-liquid manufacturer out of state is going to go through all of these ridiculously expensive things just to have the privilege to sell in Indiana where they may do very little business? They won't do it. Of course they won't. So, um, I, I guess there are, I, I guess with, with that angle, um, they could be going for something with like the commerce clause, um, which could work. That could definitely work. But I have a feeling that if a court would hear that, they could just strike that out of the law, perhaps. I don't know if they're going to strike all of those horrible regulations out. They might just strike them out for out-of-state manufacturers. I'm not sure. I'm, I don't know what they would do. Um, it, another argument that they may be making, again, I haven't seen in any of the papers from, from their lawyers, but uh, they may be alleging that um, treating uh, the cartridges, you know, the sealed cartridges that are found on Sigalikes, like Blue and Mark 10 and all that garbage, that treating those products uh, separately would be an equal protection violation. Uh, which is part of the Fourteenth Amendment that the you know that the regulation um, classifying the liquid as tobacco violates due process and the equal protection clause. We'll see. It'll be interesting, but boy, it's not looking good over there. I mean, this is this is kind of the hail mary. I mean, it's signed into law at this point. I feel so bad for for everybody in Indiana, really, especially the liquid manufacturers. This will be. Uh, this will be difficult. I wish them all the all the luck. They 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 need it more than than we do. It's bad. It's real bad. So I made um I made a T-shirt. Right, everyone knows on this on this program. I am 
talking about police abuse every week because there's news stories every week. Well, I'm going to hold off on the actual police abuse stories and just talk a, a little bit about what I did, uh, which was simply to print a T-shirt. Now, what I did, I didn't do this to be, uh, I didn't do this to, to, to be controversial, although I thought many would think it was. And, and what happened was, was anything but uh, the, the T-shirt, which um, you can see and actually buy here. I ended up just putting it up on a, on, on a website so people could buy it because people kept asking me when I was walking around with it, where do I buy that? So you can see what it looks like there. And it's a, it's quite simple. It shows the symbol for the NYPD, you know, the one that they have on their on their sleeves, and and it says above it the largest terrorist organization in New York City. Um, I don't believe that. Uh, well, I believe it to be a true statement, um, with some caveats. So let me just let me just read to you. What I wrote, because when I when I went out and, re and and wore it, I was kind of prepared for people to, I don't know, engage me in a negative way, and the exact opposite happened. So let me, I, I wrote this up. Let me just read it to you here. Um, I made that T-shirt. I made that T-shirt and wore it for the first time on Friday. I was I was fully prepared for people to engage me with negative comments. I was completely unprepared for what actually happened. Most of this happened on the subway. I took a ride about 20 miles round trip into Brooklyn and met up with a friend to play snooker. When I ride the subway, I have my headphones on and I wear a baseball hat. I don't make eye contact with strangers. I rarely get approached for conversation on the subway, except sometimes by tourists who are lost and need directions. I was approached about 15 times on the subway, plus another three or four times on the street. I regret not keeping a log so that I have an exact number. Keep in mind that every time someone wanted to talk to me about the shirt, they would actually have to tap me on the shoulder or gesture at me because I had my headphones on. That's a higher bar than the typical excuse me or hey man to begin a conversation. Every single interaction was a positive one. People stopped me and asked me various questions and made comments. One question that came up several times was, hey, where did you get that shirt? I want to buy one. I wish I could have told them where to buy one, but I just made one for myself. Now you can. At the time, I didn't have that. Uh, I didn't know about that service. Uh, one type of comment took the form of, hey, man, that's a great shirt, followed by them telling me a story about how they were harassed or arrested or roughed up by the NYPD. I had to take two trains to get to the snooker club, so I was standing on two separate subway platforms waiting for the J and the N. On two occasions, I saw someone from across the platform waving at me. I took my headphones out to hear them say, great shirt and awesome shirt, man. These were the only times that anyone has made any contact with me from across a subway platform, which is about 30 feet away. I noticed one guy banging on the window of the M when it stopped at Essex Street. He was giving me a big thumbs up. One person told me that he loves the shirt, but that I've got balls for wearing it. I asked him what he meant by that. He explained that I may be putting myself in danger because the NYPD may harass or harm me if they see it. I think he might be right, and I think that says it all, really. First Amendment protected speech being responded to with violence by law enforcement shouldn't be a concern. That didn't happen. That said, I didn't see any cops on my trip, and I hope it won't. That said, I think he may be right that it may be a legitimate concern. 
It should be unthinkable. The people who talked to me were from all races or colors. That said, all were men except for one woman. I was approached by a white man, mid-40s, who had three young children with him. My first thought when I saw him uh, was, all right, here we go, just be polite to the guy and don't argue. He was the first of many who asked me where he could buy the shirt for himself. I didn't make the shirt for the sake of being controversial. Clearly, the reactions indicated that it's just the opposite. This is not a controversial opinion. This is the mainstream opinion. I don't think the statement on the shirt is provocative or offensive. I think that the statement on the shirt is true. While it should be obvious, the statement is not about all cops or even all police departments. The statement is about the NYPD. Many people have an idea of a terrorist as being someone who uses violence towards the goal of hurting or killing people. That's not all the terrorists do. They seek to cause damage in many forms. Many times their goal is to cause economic destruction. Sometimes they imprison people who have harmed no one because of political views or other reasons. The constant threat of living amongst terrorists causes fear and emotional distress. Terrorists are not afraid of breaking the law to accomplish their goals, and they do so regularly. Terrorists don't have a problem lying on, in court while under oath. How do you feel when you're driving at or below the speed limit and you see an NYPD car in your rearview window? Exactly. The NYPD has committed all of these offenses and many more. They have killed nonviolent citizens. They have thrown innocent people, many of them photographers, in jail on trumped-up charges. They extract revenue from people who have committed no act of force against any other person. In fact, the NYPD has done that over a hundred times since I began reading this. So when I say that the NYPD is the largest terrorist organization in New York City, I'm making a true statement based on facts. Does the NYPD help people? Yes, of course, every day. Does the NYPD hurt innocent people? Yes, sadly, every day. Not all cops are bad. I think most cops are good people, NYPD officers included. That doesn't change the fact that the NYPD has more employees who are engaging in activity that would be accurately described as terrorism more than any other organization in the city of New York. The fact that my simple statement printed on a t-shirt provoked such an overwhelmingly positive reaction is actually very sad. My experience is not a scientifically controlled poll, but I think it's very telling. The citizens of New York City are fed up with the NYPD. We are tired of the harassment, the petty tickets with exorbitant fines, the oppressive broken window policing. We are tired of reckless behavior and blatant disregard for the law by those who we pay to enforce it. We are tired of the, co we are tired of the corruption and the quotas. We are tired of being disrespected. We are tired of the NYPD union protecting violent felons. We are tired of civilians being murdered by the NYPD. We want to be left alone. I wish I had printed more than one shirt. I'd like to wear it every day. Well, 
I hope there will be more than one short being worn every day. Um, just a word about this website, this, uh, what do they call it, Teespringer? I think it's called Teespringer. I put a little weirdo link, make it easy to, to remember. Yeah, it's, um, for those of you listening who just want to remember what the link is if you want to buy this shirt, it's uh, bit.ly, which is a little bit.ly link shortener, bit.ly forward slash NYPD shirt. So just a word about this website. It's really, because um, I posted, excuse me, I posted my experience uh, in various places online and people encouraged me to use this website um, to make it easy for people to buy it. Uh, so yeah, it's called Teespring. So it's really cool in that I should put ClickBank shirts up on this too. Why didn't I do that? I'll do that after the show. Um, uh, I'll have to get a link for it. I'll check check the replay notes for the link. It'll probably be like bit.ly forward slash ClickBank radio shirt. Let's make it that. Okay. Don't take that now, please. <laughs> anyway. The website is really cool. What it allows you to do is make whatever kind of t-shirt you want. And then they ask you, you, and then you offer it and whatever. I, I've got this one, this NYPD shirt. You can get it as uh, just a regular black t-shirt for $15. Then you can get it as a ladies fitted shirt for $16 or a men's uh, V-neck for, I believe, $18, right? So they ask how many you plan to sell and then basically what they do is they take orders for a week so nothing happens for a week and if you reach what you want to to make then they'll start printing them and send them out so I set I didn't know what to do so I just set the number at 50 so some people have bought so now um, only 18 more need to be sold for them to print it and then they print it like if you don't reach your number uh then they don't print any and anyone who's placed an order is not charged so realistically um the way that not just for this but anything that you see there that you like um so for example this i there's a uh, six more days left i started it yesterday so there's six more days left if you were to uh, to purchase it now you're likely to receive it like on June 1st, probably, because then they, they wait for the campaign to end. Then if they meet it, they print it, which I, I guess takes a week or so, depending on the size of your order or the size of your uh, projected campaign. And then they ship them out to you, right? So I just think it's a great website because basically you can um, you can just make a, and, and it's so much, like the, the shirt I printed for myself I went to another website and it cost me to print that shirt for myself. It cost me after shipping $27 for one shirt. Um, the fact that you're going to these people and the larger the number you set, obviously the less per shirt it cost. I didn't really know what to do. So I just picked 50 as a, as a round number. And it seems to be going well because only 18 more are needed for this to actually work. And then like you, you can, you get a few bucks for it. So like, you're you're actually setting up a business um for t-shirts or whatever else they make. I didn't really look around too much. I just went there because people said this is a great site. You can put yourself in the clothing business 
in like five minutes. It's a fantastic business concept. Um, I don't know whether or not 18 more people are going to buy the shirt. I don't know, but hey, have at it. So anyway, so like that was that was my whole experience from, uh, you know, walking around. I actually was contacted by a a reporter from a local television station, uh, WPIX 11, and he wanted to interview me about it. I'm always a little wary about this. I've been I've I've given interviews to these local reporters before for like e-cigarettes. Like one of them was done by NY One, and they they ended up making like this total hit piece and just took one of my quotes out of context and gave the line share of the interview to some doctor who didn't know what he was talking about. And it was just, it was just basically a slam piece on e-cigarettes. So I was, I mean, the guy seemed like a really nice guy, but I was still a little wary. So I tried to keep my quotes as short as possible so that it would be um, difficult or impossible for him to take anything I was saying out of context. I would try to like, just answer his, all of his questions with like five word sentences and I did a pretty good job of that. That said, it kind of did turn into, it was basically, they were doing, they were doing a story. You remember how um, there was like this, uh, I think there was like this, uh, this cop that was murdered down South. And then this woman who worked for Subway, like went on Twitter or Instagram or something and said how she, how glad she was that the cop was uh, killed. And then some other people did something similar. And then he included me, he said, you know, this guy was wearing it on the day that uh, the NYPD officer was being buried, which was not true. Um, I wore it that day for him when he interviewed me because he asked me to. I didn't wear it on the day of the funeral. That was a different day when I chose to wear it. I only wore it for him because he asked for an interview. Whatever. I'm not that mad at the guy. He took one of my quote. You know, he interviewed me for like 20 minutes. The quote he took was, you know, New Yorkers are, are tired of the broken window policing. It's eroding the public's trust in... Um, and the police, which is, which is, I think, obviously true. That said, I wasn't particularly pleased about being lumped into a story of people saying that it's good that cops were killed. I don't believe that at all. In fact, I wish he had included in, you know, one, one more of my statements that I believe that all, that most cops, NYPD included, are good people and even good cops. I do believe that. I think the problem is that the bad apples um, not only don't lose their job, they get promoted, they don't get disciplined, um, they remain on the force, and they're repeat offenders, and they cost the city millions of dollars every year because obviously when somebody does something bad, like, oh, I don't know, killing somebody, and uh, they don't get as much as a slap on the wrist, uh, it's not much of a, a deterrent from them behaving badly uh, in the future, which of course happens. Anyway, that's my story. Uh, I'm not going to bother linking to the local news thing because, like I said, they took one quote from me and the rest of it is about people who are assholes. They, no, nobody should be celebrating the death of a of a police officer. It's ridiculous. I regret, you know, I really do regret giving the interview, so I'm certainly not linking to it. Um... Here's something just kind of like way out of left field here. It just, um, I think what, the, the, the thing about, you know, we talk a lot about law and um, 
you know, related to all kinds of topics on, on this program and, and others here on VP Live. Um, one of the things that I, I don't think people really understand or, or even think about is the fact that people making these laws, it starts decades before. It starts with the work of philosophers. I don't think people really understand how important and how influential um, philosophy is in the actual creation of laws just because it's so far removed from a chronological perspective. Um, most of the laws that we live under today are actually because of a man named Immanuel Kant who was around hundreds of years ago. Most people don't know who he was, what he thought, um, but believe me, um, the people in college who are taking philosophy classes, uh, he's the dude. He's the most important one. He's the one where all of the PhD theses are being written about. And these people who are majoring in philosophy, that is uh, you know, PPL, uh, politics, philosophy, and law, that's the most um, commonly selected major for those who are seeking a career as a legislator. So they're well-versed in dominant paradigms in philosophy. Sometimes they start hundreds of years ago, like Kant. Sometimes they're starting now or 10 years ago, which you know influences these people into how they make law and the, how they see people's rights and all that stuff. So one of the... Uh, I was reading about a couple of philosophers. Uh, I believe they are in... Uh, I don't know if they're English or Australian. Um, and they were debating something that was, I mean, how anyone would even have this concept, let alone an influential professor, you know, who is paid to think, who is paid to write about philosophy, how this concept would ever enter someone's mind. It just kind of, it, it totally blew me away. Now, what these people, these two philosophers were discussing was how do we eradicate these huge disparities in the privilege that's given to children, right? Now, one thing that they discussed was, well, if the differences in the privileges that children get are caused because of disparities in the means of different families, that is their socioeconomic status, why not just remove the concept of the family altogether? That is, all children who are born become the property of the state and are raised by the state. Now, that's not their idea. That's not an original idea. That was um, originally raised by Plato. So we're talking about thousands of years ago. Um, and, you know, they say, well, you know, that wouldn't work out so well. But really, why wouldn't it, you know? And obviously everybody knows that people who are raised by the state because there's no one else to raise them, that doesn't work out so well. So they, they never really good, give a good reason why um, that shouldn't be done. It sounds like they would like it, um, but I, I, I guess they don't want to, I, I don't know. They, they, they say, well, we don't want to go that far, but let's look at other things. Now, one conclusion that they come to is to completely abolish any private education. 
Now, that doesn't just mean sending your kid to a private school. That would also include, if your kid goes to public school, getting them private tutoring on the side, at home, on the weekends, whenever, um, because it is your um, heightened economic status, your, 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 your greater wealth that allows you to do that. And to them, that's clearly an abuse of what you have and creates this great difference, this great um, imbalance in the children and the education that they receive and how well they will do with life. Um, I mean, my, my reaction to that is, you know, mind your own fucking business. Um, it is none of your business how another child decides to raise their children, what kind of education they, they, they pay for it. Um, I would say it's a free country, but um, they're fixing to change that. They took, they take it even further. And this is the part that to me is completely mind blowing. They take it down to the level of adults reading their children bedtime stories that this is unfair. I quote, what we realized is that we needed a way of thinking about what it was we wanted to allow parents to do for their children. Even that, I, I, I have to stop. Even that statement is just, I mean, I can't imagine, I'm not a parent. I can't imagine how you, those, those of you listening who are parents, react to that kind of statement. What we're going to do, to what we're going to allow parents to do and not do. Keep in mind, these are not legislators. No, no, no. It's far worse. They're philosophers. What we realize, <clears throat> pardon me, I need a drink of water. Pardon me. Quote, what we realized we needed was a way of thinking about what it was we wanted to allow parents to do for their children and what it was we didn't need to allow parents to do for their children if allowing those activities would create unfairness for other people's children. The test they devised was based on what they term familiar, familial relationship goods, those unique and, ident and identifiable things that arise within the family unit and contribute to the flourishing of family members. For Swift, there's one particular choice that fails the test. Private schooling cannot be justified by appeal to these familial relationship goods, he says. It's just not the case that in order for a family to realize these intimate, loving, authoritative, affectionate, love-based relationships, you need to be able to send your child to an elite private school. In contrast, reading stories at bedtime, argues Swift, gives rise to acceptable familial relationship goods, even though this too bestows an advantage. The evidence shows that the difference between those who get bedtime stories and those who don't the difference in their life chances is actually bigger than the difference between those who get elite private schooling and those that don't, he says. This devilish twist of evidence surely leads to a further conclusion. 
that perhaps in the interest of leveling the playing field, bedtime stories should also be restricted. In Swift's minds, this is where the evaluation of familial relationship goods goes up a notch. Well, you do have to allow parents to engage in bedtime stories activities. and In fact, we encourage them because those are the kinds of interactions between parents and children that do indeed foster and produce these desired familiar relationship goods. Swift makes it clear that although both elite schooling and bedtime stories both, might both skew the family game, restricting the former would not interfere with the creation of the special loving bond that, bear, uh, that families give rise to. Taking the books away is another story. We could prevent elite private schooling without any real hit to healthy family relationships. Whereas if we say that if you can't read bedtime stories to your kids, because it's not fair that some kids get them and others don't, then that would be too big a hit at the core of family life. So should parents snuggling up for one last story before lights out be even a little concerned about the advantage they might be conferring? I don't think parents reading their children bedtime stories should constantly have in their minds the way that their children are unfairly disadvantaging other people's children, Quip Swift. But I think that they should have thought about it occasionally. These people are being paid to think about these things. So for you parents out there, I guess, according to Swift and this other dickhead, think twice before you read your kid that final bedtime story or before you read one at all because you may be bestowing some unfair advantage over the kids who have parents that don't do that. There are people that are paid to think about this sort of thing. Wow. I remember when I was a kid, I went to a regular, um, I went to public school um, but my, my father would sit there with me and he would, uh, I don't know, I think it was better than any kind of private tutor that could have been bought. I mean, my father's a, a fantastic writer and, um, that was the thing he helped me with the most. Um, even I had more problems with math. I, he helped me the most with English cause he was so good at it. Um, and just writing in general. I got um, I'll, and I'll never forget this one. This one uh, paper he helped me with. It was about um, it was about one of the um, I believe it was a a war between uh, Indians and uh, and the U.S. states. And I, I just I remember it was called the Last of the Hundred Years' War. And after he helped me write it, um. And by, and by helping me write it, I mean also giving me additional resources that were not in the history book that we were given at school. I had a paper that I brought to school and brought to Mr. Feldstein's class. And Mr. Feldstein took that paper and he didn't just say, you know, this is a good paper. He learned more about the incident 
than he actually knew. Uh, because I, I think my father wrote some sort of thesis on, on the Hundred Years' Wars going on. And he used my paper that I helped my, that my father helped me with quite a bit um, to create a completely new lesson plan for the class, creating you know, new knowledge that wasn't even available in the book that we had. Um, so I don't know, there's, <laughs> I guess, an anecdotal example of evidence of um, private outside tutoring leading to uh, the betterment of uh, the education of all the students in a public classroom. Perhaps something that these two philosophers didn't think could happen. Um, a rising tide, um, right, what's that fucking quote? Ah, shit. Oh, real quick. Um, this is something that Kevin has already covered on a show, and you should go back. You can listen to a, an interview he did with a guy, but just just so that you are aware of it, this is a great way to save money on vaping stuff. This fantastic website is called uh, vapecrawler.com, and basically it's, it's so easy to use. Like anything you're looking to buy, you just type it into the search field for the site, and it just gives you like a, a bunch of sites that are registered with him. Um, and any site, I can just contact him and be listed in his, like, I don't know, his computer magic. And it just gives you all the price. So, like, if you if you are interested in buying um, an iStick 50, you just go to the site, you type in iStick 50, and it gives you all these prices on all these websites. And you can see where you can find the best price for a product. So, anyway, um, I just wanted to mention it as it was something I heard on Kevin's show that I think would be valuable to, I don't know, any vapor that buys stuff on the internet. Um, it couldn't be easier to use. And uh, if you want to listen to that um, interview, uh, Kevin did it on a show he did a few weeks back. I think it was the one with the vaping bogan. So um, interesting guy, great website. and Simplest buy, easy peasy.